Today's reading is from Romans 12. You'll find it on page 1139, Romans 12, um, beginning at verse 14. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone, if it is possible. As far as depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil but overcome evil with good. This is the word of the Lord. friends when I chatted to them said that uh, they were going to preach this Sunday about coronavirus and I kind of sat and thought well, I'm not sure I've got quite a lot of conviction what I think God's already told me and so I spent some time and decided I'm not going to change my mind so be relieved this morning. Um, second thing to say is this is that um, there's lots of things that are very serious about it but some of the things that are uh, going round on, that actually do make me smile and one of which is I don't know how stockpiled you are with toilet roll whether you're living by the amount of toilet roll you have or you're living by faith this morning but uh, maybe you're in the right place uh, to live by faith. This morning's topic the passage we're looking at is really challenging and actually I would beggar to suggest that a number of you will know that revenge is one of the most basic human responses when someone's hurt us. When someone's deliberately hurt us, when someone's unsuspectingly hurt us, actually revenge does become, in many ways, something that happens automatically. And most of the time we try and hold on to that. We might happen in our head and we just privately seethe and imagine what we'd like to do to the person who has offended us, who has hurt us, who has damaged us, hoping at some point the person who's hurt us will get their comeuppance. That whether it's not you or it's somebody else will bring them down a peg and they will get their just desserts. <clears throat> but occasionally you encounter people who go beyond imagining. And this is a story I read 
of someone who went beyond fantasizing about revenge, but went out. It's the story of a Japanese man who was denied entrance to his master's program at the university in Japan he was studying in. Since he had been denied, he averaged 10 phone calls an evening, between 8 o'clock in the evening and 2 in the morning, to his former professor, who he thought was a person responsible for denying him the opportunity of doing the course that he wanted to do. <clears throat> the police estimated that over 14 years that this student had placed 50,000 annoying phone calls to his former professor. 50,000. Revenge to a new level, maybe. <clears throat> there are websites devoted to people who've sought revenge and sought revenge for people who've damaged them. I still remember when I was in my early 20s, I worked in the NHS and I shared an office with about 20 people um, in the, um, the department I was in. I still remember one day there was this lady who worked in the office, uh, a young lady, she was about mid-20s, and she came in one morning and she was quite upset and um, she talked about the fact that her relationship was over and she went on to describe the fact that that previous day she had found out that a boyfriend of the time had been cheating on her and she promptly cut up all his clothes that he'd left, including his most uh, precious suits and other things that he valued, and that she put everything in a bag and she dumped them out the window onto the street the next day. <clears throat> Retaliation, revenge, getting even. These are, in many ways, knee-jerk reactions sometimes, where actually people have hurt us People have damaged us, and we want to get even. We're looking at these chapters in Romans uh, over the next few weeks and the previous couple of weeks. They're all about what the Christian life looks like in practice. What as a church, we as St. Swithens are called to behave, how we're called to live, how we're called to go about our life as a church and as individual Christians. And make no mistake, Jesus does not call us just to reflect the culture that we live in. Jesus actually came to bring about a new normal, to bring about a new way of living, a new community, and it's called the kingdom of God. And here we find really challenging teaching about that we're called not to retaliate in our relationships. We're not to seek revenge and retaliation. So let me just pray as we begin. Heavenly Father, I want to thank you this morning that you are at work in our lives, you are at work in your world, in all our vulnerability, all our weakness. And I pray this morning that your kingdom would come afresh this day. To us personally, to us as a church, to this city, and to your world. That we lift the name of Jesus high and say, come afresh upon us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. If you have your Bibles open, you might find that helpful. And most commenters uh, commenting on this passage say that at verse 14, right at the beginning, the Apostle Paul switches his focus from relationships outside the church to those, those inside the church to those outside the church. When he says, bless those, bless those who persecute you. 
bless and do not curse. And the New Testament everywhere assumes that Christian, Christians will encounter hostility in the world. The Bible paints a picture that is at odds of a world at odds with Christ and the life that he lived during his time. And Jesus telling his followers and teaching his followers and showing his followers, for example, there's a different way and a new way to live. For example, love your enemies. Love your enemies. Before I get to talk particularly about this passage, I just want to talk about a couple of things to put this into context. See, in the Bible, what you'll find is if you just picked up the Bible and looked at a random passage, you might think, well, I don't quite know what we think about retaliation. But actually, I want to talk briefly about two different martyrs, people who died for their faith that you find in Scripture, who were both killed. One famous martyr who Jesus speaks about in Matthew uh, 23 is a man called Zechariah, the son of Berechiah. And we, have found, we find the account of his death in two chronicles. And as Zechariah, this man Zechariah, is laying dying, he invokes the name of the Lord and he curses his persecutor, the person who's killed him. He says this, may the Lord see to you, see this, and call you to account. You then move to the New Testament, and you see the first New Testament martyr, as many of you will know, is a man named Stephen who was stoned to death. And in Acts 7, what we find as Stephen is being stoned to death, it says this, while they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Do not hold this sin against them, said Stephen. So what's happened between the time of this account of Zechariah and this time of Stephen? Very different responses to being killed and to being persecuted. One one response is this. Kill him! That's justice. He's done me harm. I want to see justice fall upon this. May the Lord see to you and call you to account. And then Stephen says, don't hold sin, their sin, against them. And the difference between these two accounts is the difference between the New Testament and the Old Testament. Not completely, but that's the main difference. And the difference is this, is that Jesus happened. Jesus came between those two events. And the difference between choosing to avenge your death or forgiving your death is the difference between the person who has shaped history. There is a before Christ and there is after Christ. There's a BC and there is an AD. Christ established a new trajectory, a new way of living, and a new way for our relationships. And he did that four ways for us this morning that actually I just want to quickly talk about before we look at our passage Firstly, Jesus' teaching happened. One of the best-known passages in the Bible is Jesus' Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, 38 to 42. What we see is this. You've heard that it's said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, do not resist evil, an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to the other cheek also. 
anyone wants to sue you, take your shirt and take your coat off as well and give them. And then goes on to talk about going the extra mile for your enemy. I wonder when you read those words, what you think. What do you actually think about Jesus' teaching? I mean, do you sit there this morning and think, nice teaching, not really very realistic, Jesus? I mean, no, seriously, is that what you think? That Jesus is not really being very realistic. This is sort of pie-in-the-sky kind of teaching that's lovely to have, but entirely impossible to live. See, Jesus' teaching stretches us, and it stretches our faith. And actually, if we're called to be followers of Jesus, we're called to follow and to obey his teaching, even the difficult stuff. Jesus says, don't retaliate. Secondly, we see Jesus, it's our example happened. And Jesus is the one person in human history who actually lived out what he taught uh, others to do. And it's amazing to observe if you go through the Gospels, the accounts, and the Bible to see Jesus' life. He literally turned the other cheek. So when he was on the cross, when Jesus was literally hung to a cross, what did Jesus do? Did he pray, get them? Rain down fiery sulfur on their heads, they deserve it. Is that what Jesus prayed? Did he pray like the Old Testament psalmist who says, smash their babies on a rock. Repay them, God, for everything they're doing to me. Did Jesus say that? Did he? No, he didn't. He said, Father, forgive them. Father, forgive them. Father, forgive them. Forgive who? The Roman soldiers, the Sanhedrin, Pontius Pilate. Father, forgive them. Forgive who? You and me this morning? Father, forgive us. Father, forgive us. The liturgy of the confession, what are we asking forgiveness for? says this, we have followed too much the divisive desires of our own hearts. We've offended your holy laws. We've left undone the things we were called to do. And we've done those things that we're not called to do. And there's no health in us. Those are the words of the confession But Jesus forgives. Jesus forgives, even on a cross. So what did Jesus die for? Earlier on in Romans, we see Paul writing in Romans 5, 6 to 10, and this is what it said. You see, at just the right time, while we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person, some might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall be saved from God's wrath through him? 
For if, while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? See, look at those descriptions of us. Powerless, ungodly, sinners, God's enemies. Do you understand this morning? There are no people, no people, in the world sufficiently good that God doesn't need to forgive them. But there are also no people in the world who are so sufficiently wicked that God is not willing to forgive them. If they simply ask, Christ died for us. Now as you're looking and you're maybe listening to this, you're sat there thinking, well, Tim, this was Jesus. Jesus could forgive like that. Jesus could forgive his enemies, but I'm not Jesus. I can't do that. I'm simply Tim or I'm simply whoever this morning. He said, I can't do that. See, the thing is this, if you're a Christian, Christianity is not just trying to follow the teaching of Jesus, not trying to see the example of Jesus and do what he did. Being a Christian means that the spirit of the living Jesus has made his home within you and is powering you to live in a different way for him. It's active. The spirit of God is active and at work shaping your life to live like Jesus. And when you and I sit there and say, and I know some of you quite well, and some of you have been through some horrendous things in your life, And you have people to forgive who, to be honest, you know, you might think aren't worth forgiving. But you know when you and I stand here and say, you know, I can't do it, God. I just can't do it. I'm out of resources. It's too hard. Jesus says, I understand you can't do it. But I'm going to give you the resources to live in a different way. It's about my grace. And that's what the Christian life is. The Christian life, to be a Christian, is to go beyond our human limits and ask Jesus to fill us with his life and his power and his love. That means that we have a changed heart because of his heart. So let's quickly look at our passage in front of us with that bit of context to say, how do we get there? Because actually, if we're called to live like that, What do these practices Paul talks about? How do we get there? How do we move through that? How do we bring those practices into our lives that will change things around us? And Paul lists four pairs of things. Things we're called to not do and things we're called to do. And the fourth pair is a summary statement of everything Paul is calling us to do this morning. And it's this. Do not be overcome, in verse 21, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Overcome evil with good. With good. So what practices will help forge us into the people who are living for God's kingdom? And I'm going to go through them briefly. Firstly, do not curse, but rather bless in verse 14. To curse someone is essentially saying to God, to withhold God's favor over that person's life, Or ask God to act in a way that would bring ill into that person's life. And we're called not to curse. 
Let me make that clear again. We're called not to curse if we're followers of Jesus. We are called to bless. I'm called to bless you. You are called to bless me. We are called to bless each other. We are called to bless the world. We are called to bless. Instead, we are to bless even our enemies. Go beyond just blessing our friends and our particular people that we enjoy being with if we're followers of Jesus. Blessing our enemies means we're asking God to bestow on people who are our enemies his goodness, his saving grace, his love, his favor on our very enemies. We can find that place that that's what we're asking God to do. Even if the person is a complete idiot, being frank. In your mind, if you think, this is the least likely person I want to see blessed. That's what we're called to. It's extraordinary. This is really tough stuff. So how do we do it? These are the words of C.S. Lewis. He said this. He said, when you pray for Hitler, or you pray for Stalin, or for somebody who's damaged you, how do you exactly teach yourself to pray for them in the way that's actually real? And he said there are two things that helped him to do that. Firstly, he said this. A continual grasp of the idea that one is only joining in, adding one's feeble prayers to the perpetual intercession of Christ who died for the very people that you're praying for. That Christ is continually interceding for the most, in your mind, unwilling, idiotic, evil people. Christ is interceding for them. Secondly, C.S. Lewis said this, he said, he said, a recollection, as firm as I can make it, of all of one's own cruelty. Which actually, if we're honest, might have blossomed into something very different under different conditions, into something quite terrible when we're honest in our lives. You and I are not at the bottom, said C.S. Lewis, so different from these ghastly creatures. Blessing someone who curses you can only happen as we ask and as we share in the life of God's Spirit, as we tap into the heart of a God who is greater, stronger, more powerful, more generous than our own heart, the poverty of our own hearts and the poverty of our own spirits at times. And we discover that in the heart of Jesus. Secondly, do not retaliate, but pursue peace with everybody. Verses 17 to 18. You know, retaliation is the iron law of action and reaction. It's Newton's third law for those physicists amongst you. And any of you who have been married know the stupid arguments, uh, those of you in close relations, close relationship, we get into. You know, did you put the out the bins today? No, I didn't. Why didn't you? I forgot. Well, why did you forget? Uh, I had other things on my mind. Don't you know I'm very busy? Well, I'm, I'm so busy, but don't you know I'm busy? Back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, back and forth we go in our relationships. Subtly undermining each other.
Paul says, don't retaliate. Rather, be at peace with everybody. And Paul's statement here is both qualified and unqualified. Unqualified in the sense that we're called to live at peace and to seek peace with everybody. It's as open as that. Remember, for God, there are no unforgivable people. None. There is no one who's ever lived who God is not willing to forgive if they turn to him and to repent. And there's no one who'd lived who Jesus didn't die for, and we need to remember that when we're thinking about peace. Paul said we should seek peace with everybody. Not everybody apart from the idiot who fathered your kids, or the person who broke into your home, or the person who's ruined your career. Seeking peace may begin with an email, it may begin with a phone call, it may begin with an apology to someone even though you think you're only 5% in the wrong, and the other person is 95% in the wrong. It means taking action and seeking peace. But it also, Paul says, it's, it's also qualified because actually sometimes achieving peace with another person is actually impossible. Sometimes the person, other person is unwilling to live at peace with us. They refuse to meet. They refuse to go to a counsellor or to a mediator or to get help. They refuse to, to bring into the light and to work through the reality of their addiction to drugs, to alcohol, to adultery, to laziness, to not doing all those things. They refuse to find help. They refuse to want to live at peace with you. Sometimes peace does not depend on us. But sometimes the other person is literally just unwilling to live peacefully. And Paul recognizes that. But we still seek peace. And lastly, do not avenge yourself, but leave room for God's wrath and serve your enemy in verses 19 to 20. What does, this, what does that mean? It means that don't try to take justice into your own hands. The Apostle Paul is not against justice. But just don't go freelance. Don't be judge and jury. Don't try and become the person who tries and brings justice in your own way and for your own purposes. But leave room for God and trust God. But also allow the state to be part of the way in which justice is brought. You know, it's impossible to be judge and jury on your own case fully. We can't see everything. We can't see everything that is in a whole way. And God gives that task and delegates that past to our, our government, for example, for those who, who steal stuff, or a child abuse or a rapist. There's a system in place that means that actually we just need to hand over some of the justice to other people and say, let the state deal with you. I personally am not responsible for bringing my version of justice over every area of the world. I release you to the state to bring about justice. And of course, in cases where it's not a, a kind of legal thing, it's not a criminal violation that's take place, we have to leave it to God, to his wrath and to his justice, to actually deal with, to trust him that ultimately, ultimately, there is an ultimate judge in whom we trust things into his hands that we'll all be called to give an account for. Paul then goes on to say, but do more than that. Serve your enemies too. 
If your enemy is hungry, feed him, he says. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. One commentator wrote this. He said, the meaning of heaping burning coals upon his head refers to the burning pain of shame and remorse which a person feels when their hostility is repaid with true love. When people encounter true love. Many of you will know, as I bring this to a close, about the civil rights movement in America and the racism and segregation that was in place in America and the American South in the 50s, but also went into the 60s too. One of the great miracles was the leadership of someone called Martin Luther King at that time. And these were a number of things he said in the midst of the battle, in the midst of the very depth of all that was going on. I won't do the accent, so you're all right. But for those of you who know it, I'll do my best. To our most bitter opponents, we say, we shall match your capacity to to inflict suffering by our capacity to endure suffering. We shall meet your physical force with soul force. Do to us what you will, and we shall continue to love you. We cannot, in all good conscience, obey your unjust laws because non-cooperation with evil is as much a moral obligation as cooperation with good. Throw, Throw us in jail, and we shall still love you. Bomb our homes, threaten our children, and we shall still love you. Send your hooded perpetrators of violence into our community at midnight and beat us and leave us half dead and naked and we shall still love you. He then went on to say somewhere else as well, it's true that if we struggle for freedom in America, we will have to boycott at times, but we remember that the boycott is not an end within itself. The end is reconciliation. The end is redemption. The end is the creation of God's beloved community. King said it's this type of spirit, this type of love, that can transform opposers into friends. It is this love will bring about the miracles of hearts changed. Today we're followers of the same Jesus. Jesus teaches us a new normal. It's his love expressed in and through our lives that has the power to transform enemies into friends. Not retaliating when we're hurt is an essential building block to build God's beloved community. God is calling each one of us this week to his goodness afresh, to bring and share his goodness in this world. And boy, at this particular time, at this particular juncture in the world, the world needs God's love and God's blessing. It really, really does. And he's put that into our hands. Sounds extraordinary, doesn't it? Why would God entrust that to us? But God has called us to be agents of his blessing and of his love in this world. That's his plan. And it's for us. So how will you do that this week? How will you demonstrate love this week? How will you bless others this week? Who will you love? And how will you overcome evil with good? Let me pray. Heavenly Father, I want to thank you afresh for the good news that we have, that in the gift of Jesus, 
that you show us that there's a different way to live, a different way to be. Thank you for the extraordinary good news that we can build our lives upon and in times of uncertainty, of times of change. And the ethic and the values that seem so difficult to live, we ask that would you fall afresh upon us as a community. Would you fall afresh in the same spirit that dwelt within Jesus, would dwell afresh within us to live for you in Bath. Thank you for the gift of uh, this church that's been here for a thousand years. Would we continue to take hold of what you've called us to be and to live for you in this generation? In Jesus' name, amen.